From Little Things is brought to you by Papiera, the all-in-one solution that makes business easy for Aussie sole traders, company directors, and small business owners. You can learn more and get started for free Welcome at Papiera.com. to the From Little Things podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Kinadzara, and together on From the show, Things we'll speak with Aussie small business Boom owners, Network founders, and entrepreneurs to get to share your brand started on and learn from podcast, those who have been in the journey Boom. from Little Things and beyond, so we can make it easier for you to succeed in business and life. From Little Things is brought to you by Papiera, the all-in-one solution that makes business easy for Aussie sole traders, company directors, and small business owners. You can learn more and get started for free at papiera.com. Welcome to today's episode of From Little Things. We've got Sharon Melamed on the show. Sharon, thanks so much for making time to speak with us. It's my absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. So um, we always love to kick off with just learning a little bit about yourself and uh, always like our guests to introduce themselves because I think you'll do the best job. Uh, how would you best define who you are today and what you do? Hmm. Well, I definitely think of myself as an entrepreneur. It hasn't always been the case. I spent the first 20 years of my career living and working in five different companies in big uh, corporate roles. Um, but 11 years ago, I made the big switch um, to fulfill my entrepreneurial dreams when I founded Matchboard. Um, and I've never looked back Um and uh, I highly recommend the entrepreneurial path to, to anyone in my network. Awesome. Well, I'd love to dig a bit deeper into that then. Um, at what stage did you, well, maybe I'll give them further back. Are you happy to share a little bit about your, your early life journey? And were there any moments through that that maybe you thought, I want to be an entrepreneur one day or anything that you look back on mm-hmm. now and said, you know, the, the characteristics were always there, but I just never pursued it? Yeah, for sure. I, I think I always had it in my DNA, <laughs> to be honest. But um, there are a couple of uh, sort of pivotal moments in my life where I realized this was my calling. So um, while at university, uh, I was studying foreign languages, actually, Japanese being one. And uh, I came up with a little business idea um, called Home Visits, where we invited Japanese tourists to come into our home, enjoy an Aussie cooked dinner. Uh, and, you know, chauffeured to and from their hotel and photos uh, sent afterwards to commemorate the occasion. And it was all packaged up. And um, when I look back on it, that was probably my first little dabble. <laughs> and um, and then I started um, after uni with a Japanese company um, using my language skills as a Japanese-speaking call center agent. But I realized within a few months I found operations uh, a little bit dry for my personality and I didn't realize it but um, I said you know I think I'd be good at business development although I'm not quite sure what that is I I wanted to give it a shot and they let me do that and I just naturally um, gravitated to to sales and um, and they allowed me to come up with all these entrepreneurial ideas it was a very unusual company Um, so it was like being an entrepreneur but um, with someone else paying for the the idea development and taking a risk on you so um that was great I stayed with that company 15 years and continued uh sort of conceptualizing new offerings along the way and then when I came back to that was actually yeah where were you uh, during that time was it that in Australia or was it yeah they transferred me from Australia to the U.S. I put up my hands uh who wouldn't to go to New York um and um when I went to New York, it was uh, like the dot-com era when the internet was just blo- 
booming, uh, blooming. <laughs> and um, there were dot-com parties every second night of the week in New York <laughs> where people would just have this, but they were called dot-com parties, but it was like people who had an idea to do with the internet and um, they would just all get together and discuss it and have, and you'll never have that era again, but it was amazing to live through um, that, the excitement and the thrill um, of the the birth of the internet and the businesses around it. Um, but of course, there was a lot of hype and a lot of exuberance and many businesses went bust. But definitely that environment gave birth to a very entrepreneurial uh, spirit or atmosphere that I was exposed to. And that absolutely uh, influenced me. I think um, US uh, uh, business people are uh, perhaps a bit more open to taking risks and giving things yeah. a go than in Australia. So that rubbed off on me. Um, and then I have to say um, the other pivotal moment in my journey was um, I did a one-year sabbatical in Israel. And Israel is also known as a startup nation and everybody there wants to start a business. Yep. Uh, failure is not looked down upon um, and that really um, ignited the flair, shall we say, because then I came back to Australia and it was not too long after that I thought of Matchboard, the business concept, and uh, just uh, with a, a big Cheshire grin, handed in my resignation letter at uh, my, my corporate job. Awesome. So I'll ask a little bit about uh, that switching point in a moment, but um, just to reflect on the dot-com uh, boom that you referred to, do you see any parallels between uh, the dot-com boom and perhaps the last couple of years where we had a, you know, a pretty um, bullish market? Uh, there was the hype around uh, Web3. Uh, we're now going to the AI type of cycle. Um, you know, there was cheap money available. And uh, arguably, a lot of businesses are going out of business now that we're kind of, I'm sure there would have been maybe not dot-com parties, but I could imagine there might be NFT parties out there. Um, <laughs> did, did, did you see any parallels around the way business was changing back then versus now? Mm. I do think it was higher up in the hype cycle back then with just um, more, it was more common to sort of uh, get involved in that whole tech sector. Now it's sort of like every business is a tech business. And <laughs> yes, there are little I would call it waves or cycles where there's one moment it's NFT, now it's AI, but nothing like, or maybe I'm just a bit too nostalgic, nothing like what it was in New York at the time. But of course, after every dot com comes a dot bust. And, um, <laughs> you know, there, there was, and that was also around the time of uh, the World Trade Center 9 11. Um, and so it was a very weird time. Uh, to be in the US from that perspective. But um, yeah, I think um, right now um, it's with cost of living crisis, more difficulty in raising money for startups. Um, it is going to be a challenging 2024 for some. Um, I, I feel living and working in several countries has made me resilient in many ways. Like uh, it does take bit of guts to just pack your bags not knowing anyone in another country and just starting from scratch with yeah. friends colleagues job everything and when you do that five times you do become um i would say uh more robust and able to wear change and 
um, different circumstances better. So I, I think that served me well. Awesome. That, that, and I, I empathize. I've personally moved a couple of times as well to different cities and countries and love the diversity. And I think you're right about the, I spent a little bit of time in New York as well. And I think you're right about something about um, American culture where you're encouraged to take risk and entrepreneurialism is, is celebrated. I'd love to see more of that in Australia. But um, so when you started, so then walk me through, uh, what was the year that you started Matchboard? So I started Matchboard in 2012. Okay. Um, and I'll give away my age. <laughs> I was 45 uh, at the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was 45 and just, uh, I guess, alignment of all the stars. I read a Harvard Business Review piece that analyzed the most successful age to start a business based on a lot of data. Um, and you would have thought the answer there would have been 20s. You know, it's in your 20s that you're most likely to have a successful startup. But actually, it wasn't. The golden number was 45, which was exactly my age. And I thought, that's it. This is serendipity. Um, and uh, it actually gave me, a, you know, a bit of a, a confidence boost to to resign at that point. That's fantastic. So a couple of questions then. So, um, so 2012, so we spoke about the dot-com boom and then bust. Um, were you in New York beyond that then uh, through the global financial crisis as well in 2008 and nine? Uh, I left uh, in 2005, so just before that. Okay. <laughs> Escaped so, just in time. <laughs> <laughs> and so you weathered the, the crisis uh, in employment, it sounds like. Um, yeah. When you, um, when, you, when you started Matchboard, um, was it a clean-cut resignation and then sort of a blank canvas We had some time to think about it? Or did you already have the idea and start working before you quit? Yeah, I already had the idea. And a lot of people start a business while they're in a corporate job. Um, but there were two reasons I didn't do that. One, it was a conflict of interest uh, with my employer, or would have been. Um, and two, I just feel... If you're going to do a startup, do it properly. And um, it's all in yeah. uh, on, you know, uh, if you really want to give it the best chance of success. So that was my situation and my view anyway. Um, I think it depends on where you're at in your life. I could, at that particular point, afford to take a risk for a year to see if it was going to fly. And I think that's very important to get the timing right otherwise it can be super stressful financially and stressful with relationships so I waited to till the time where you know I had that stability and didn't get overly stressed that you know the first few months you're not going to get much in revenues um so I think also crucial is having the support of your partner or friends or the people close to you Yep. Because it is a tough ride that first year, and uh, let's and I and I completely agree with with all the sentiment there uh, through personal experience as well. When you started uh, that first year, uh, did you bootstrap the company? Yeah, I did bootstrap, um, and I guess I just read the Lean Startup, which is a book by Eric Ries, pretty much a, a bible for startup uh, founders, and. Um, I really try to do everything in a lean way. <laughs> so, um, and one of the great, one of the biggest costs for me for startup was developing 
the Matchpod platform, which is like a matchmaking platform for business. Um, and I had to develop uh, an algorithm similar to a dating site, but for B2B. That was the biggest cost, that software development side. And when I resigned, I thought, okay, now I'll go out and get my quotes. I spent hours on Google trying to find a short list of software development and web development companies. Got my list of 10. Seven of them never got back to me. Two of them clearly didn't understand the brief. And one gave me a six-figure quote, which really bowled me over because I wasn't expecting six figures. I, I was expecting low five figures <laughs> very naively, I must say, in hindsight. Um, luckily, um, again, Israel Constance the Victor, I, I was on a holiday there um, and ran into a website development company that said, we'll do this project for you at cost in exchange for the rights to use the source code in the domestic market in Israel if ever we choose to. Now, they've never chosen to enact that, right? But for me, it was a no-brainer because instead of paying 100K plus, I was able to pay a fraction of that um, and get very high-quality work. So I think I got lucky because yes. I just happened to be on a holiday at the right moment when I needed this. Um, had I not found that solution, I actually don't know what I would have done. It's really interesting. Um, two things come to mind. One is, uh, were you would you have considered yourself as a uh, technical founder or as a uh, someone who had technology knowledge when you embarked on this journey? Non-techie founder, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never studied computer programming or anything like that. And um, I think it was, you know, early in the journey, I heard this word wireframes for the first time. And, yeah. you know, it was a very steep learning curve, um, that piece of it. And luckily I had uh, people close to me who were tech savvy and sort of bridged the gap with the developer um, because you've got to set things out in certain ways so that, it's almost like speaking another language so the developer knows what you want. You know, it's no good just having a picture of how you want the screen to look. You've got to say, well, when someone clicks this button, I want this to happen and I want this report to be generated on the back end and all that. And it, it really gave me an understanding of the work involved in building a website, particularly with some back end functionality that's got some, you know, uh, complexity to it um yeah. it's a way bigger task than i ever imagined but um you know as an entrepreneur you have to i guess know everything in the beginning and you just have to be open to learning and acquiring new skills so that was the attitude i went in with and uh, somehow pulled through <laughs> <laughs> well, we're gonna unpack a little bit of that last part but um the, the second question I had was, how much do you feel your international experiences have played into your success? Because you, you mentioned you were a bit lucky that you met someone on holiday. But, I mean, yeah. that's one part of it. The, the other part I, I, I kind of that strikes me is, is that you're someone that goes and seeks new experiences. And by putting yourself out there in a foreign environment, mm. you're more likely to to bump into someone that may run a web development agency in Israel or somewhere else in the world as opposed to had you stayed in Australia uh, and never left? Yeah, totally. I think um, diversity is a huge advantage 
in business and in life, just in every way. So just like you, you know, having experienced other countries, I really think I took away something from every country I lived or worked in. Um, I would probably call out the biggest influence as um, Japan uh, on me. So I worked 15 years with this Japanese company and um, went back and forth to Tokyo more than 40 times. was speaking more Japanese than English during that period in the office um, and really felt like I got to know the, the culture very well. And um, there's a lot about the Japanese culture and business culture specifically that I just love. And um, I have actually absorbed it into the matchboard business model. So I'll give you a couple of examples of yeah, what I mean. Yeah, I'd, I'd, lo I'd love that. And uh, yeah, please do. Yeah. Um, okay, so the first one is that in Japan, business relationships are very much built on long-term relationships of trust and um, very different to my experience in the US where you would start off a business meeting with, here's an NDA, can you sign this before we open our mouths? <laughs> Whereas the Japanese absolutely like to get to know you as a person, go out to a bit of karaoke, have a, you know, a laugh together. Um, and um, it's all about the person and, and, and trusting them. Uh, and that takes time. And a lot of Westerners are not willing to invest that time in business relationships. They want to cut straight to the chase, make a deal. Um, and I much prefer the relationship-driven approach um, and, and building up trust. I love trusting people. Maybe I'm too trusting, but uh, it's a, a, an amazing thing to, to be able to trust some, somebody implicitly. Um, and so with Matchboard's business model, um, it is actually built on trust. Our model is that we match up two sides of the market and the transactions don't occur on our platform. They're based on the suppliers telling us, hey, we just won that deal and, and we clip the ticket, we get a success fee. But unless they tell us that honestly and we trust them to do that, we wouldn't know that we would do any fee. So everybody warned me against that model when I started Matchboard. They said, you can't trust people like that. You're too naive. But the proof's in the pudding 11 years later, it's absolutely worked. Um, there are many other reasons why I chose that model, but um, the Japanese experience gave me the confidence for the trust-based model. Um, another thing is in Japan, the customer is so important. They're not only um, king, they're God. <laughs> and... Um, Every business is just built around um, making sure customers are satisfied. And it, when things go wrong, apologizing. I remember um, in Japan, one of my clients was a competitor of Amazon.com with, you know, online book selling at the time. And um, something wasn't delivered and the customer was very unhappy. The country head for Japan actually showed up on that customer's doorstep uh, bowing deeply, begging for forgiveness. And I think he might have even taken a small food or something. <laughs> um, like in what other country would that happen? Um, so um, or, always focused on the customer is, is basically my takeaway. Or, I mean, that's going to drive business success if you give customers what they want, if they're happy. Um, 
And then the third call out I would say is personalization. I mean, everyone's into that now, personalized marketing, personalized this, that. Um, but even back then, like 20 years ago in Japan, um, I remember the chairman of the company I was working for, who's like a billionaire, would personally sign and write a little note on birthday cards to all the employees. Um, and there were a lot of employees. Like, yeah. in what country he would that happen? Every day of the year writing notes, wouldn't he? <laughs> so there was so many things about Japan. Um, yeah. The other, I guess if I could give one more example of something I love about Japanese culture is this concept of, it's called kizukai in Japanese, and it means thoughtfulness or consideration, um, being attentive to someone else's needs. So... That's really driven me to always be respectful of other people's schedules, always be on time for meetings, um, you know, deadlines that you promise. Delivering what you say you will um, is just, you know, uh, something inherent to the way I operate now. And I do think that, Jap that Japanese um, approach has rubbed off so in a very good way. So I would call out uh, that as a biggest influence. They're actually really amazing insights. So thank you for sharing it. And I think the unique insights as well, um, you know, as mentioned, this is our eighth episode and we haven't had anyone speaking about the influence of Japanese culture, let alone uh, the influence of our international experiences. But again, from a personal perspective, I think that can be a really powerful differentiator when you come back home to be able to bring those learnings. Um, mm. Let's talk a little bit about Matchboard. Where did the initial idea come from? And perhaps before you answer that, what is Matchboard? Okay. So Matchboard is like the B2B version of a dating site. So instead of matching people, we match businesses with service providers. So it could be providers of consulting services, training services, offshore staffing, uh, call center services, uh, digital marketing services. We cover a huge range. So what is involved is basically uh Someone going onto our website, it's all free to use, entering their needs for a service. It takes about 60 seconds to answer our little questionnaire. And then our matching software finds them pre-vetted um, providers of those services um, that are the best possible match for that specific need. And we ask a lot of questions so we can really narrow it down. Um, and that's something you can't do with search engines. You can't type in... Um, Digital market agency, budget, $1,000 a month, industry expertise, uh, financial services. It just doesn't work like that with search engines. Yeah. But with Matchboard, you can enter all those things. Um, and, and so, yeah, we make our money from the suppliers that win deals, the service providers that win deals through our platform. And, and we've got almost 5,000 clients today. Amazing. And i use the term uh, two-sided marketplace, uh, where you've got buyers and sellers that you need to bring together into your platform. Um, yes. How did you, well, firstly, how did you find this as a problem to solve? Yeah. Um, well, it's happening in every office every day where people are searching on Google and getting frustrated. Yeah. I shouldn't say just Google because there's a range of search engines out there, but um, essentially... Um, people spend a lot of time sifting through all the search results. If it's something important to them, you know, they could spend hours or days 
just like I did when I started Matchboard and was looking for a web developer, I did spend a couple of days going through so many options. Um, and it's very frustrating to have to spend that amount of time and with technology these days not to be able to finesse the search engines more effectively. Uh, of course, there's ChatGPT, but that's another story now. Um, yeah. So um, I and the other way people approach it is I'll just go with an option on page one of the search results. And that can sometimes be a dodgy company. Like there are no, um, you know, rating customer reviews. It's just, you know, whoever's on page one, people tend to go with 90% of the time because they can't be bothered looking further. So I thought there's a, a, an opportunity to solve two problems. One is to solve the the frustration and the time involved in searching for a new provider that's the match for your need. And the other problem that Matchboard solves is we screen every supplier. We speak to their clients. We do reference checks. We look at their websites. We um, actually do research on who's running the business and their LinkedIn profiles, lots of stuff. And with Google, LinkedIn, all these other big platforms, there's no guarantee of that. No one's done that research. Anyone can list effectively. Yep. So we've solved that um, issue of um, risk, uh, mitigating the risk, um, because if you end up with a dodgy supplier and you're a small business owner, it can bring you down. Yes. So I think that's very a very important part of our value proposition. So that whole um, concept of trust again and building trust within the ecosystem. Mm, um, exactly. And I know like it's it's been going now for over ten years, so that's fantastic. And congratulations on on the journey. But if you think back to the early days where perhaps you didn't yet have trust in the ecosystem, and you had to go and find, you had to build both sides of the marketplace. Um, how did you go about doing that? Yeah, um, it trust is absolutely critical when you go to a website. I guess that's your gateway into a company and where you make a a quick judgment about am I going to trust this company? So for me, it was very much about on the homepage, what are the so-called badges of trust that I should uh, aim for there? And badges of trust are things like, uh, you know, testimonials, uh, Google reviews, um, awards that you've won, uh, publications, high-profile publications you've been featured in, like the Financial Review, the Sydney Morning Herald, all that stuff uh, gives us trust signals. And so for a small business that wants to appeal to big businesses, that is really important. So um, I went about ticking off all those boxes of, of getting those badges of trust. Uh, I started applying like a mad woman for different business awards and <laughs> And picked up a few, um, but uh, it's also just reputation building, and you can do that on LinkedIn. Um, you know, building your personal brand that you personally would be someone that's trustworthy by the sort of content you um, post, the sort of thought leadership you display, and the manner in which you engage um, is all very important. So there's a lot to it. There's no silver bullet, but um, Building trust is absolutely key in a two-sided marketplace. Um, for the and that's mainly for the buyer side. 
for the prov service provider or supplier side, it's going out there um, as much as possible, meeting in person and looking people in the eye. Can I trust you <laughs> to actually report your wins from Matchboard and introductions um, yeah. and establishing that close relationship with the, the CEO or the owner or someone very senior in those companies. And um, uh, I spent a lot of time actually on that on that piece. Okay, that's really, really insightful. And um, what were, what were uh, well, if we fast forward, um, yeah, it's a long period of time that you've been in business. Um, what have been some of the highlights uh, over that journey and how's the business changed over the last 10 years or so? Mm. Um, the thing that gives me the greatest pleasure is uh, when I see a five-star customer review pop up, you know, I think 100% of our Google reviews are five-star. And it's just so validating. That means more to me than anything is what the customers are saying because it means we're actually making a difference. Um, and as an entrepreneur, I think everyone aspires to having business that's helping people in some way, that's improving uh, their lives or their bottom line. Or um, So so that's great. But um, apart from that, uh, it's been... Uh, a goal of mine to um, be a role model for my daughter to show that you can be a great mum and have a great business at the same time. Um, and uh, I think I, I've also achieved that goal, um, which is great. Um, a couple of other highlights were just, you know, winning some awards. Like the very first one that Matchboard got was being um, – inaugurated into Westpac's 200 Businesses of Tomorrow program where they picked 200, the 200 most promising businesses in Australia. And I couldn't believe it when we were selected. And um, and then um, last year, keeping NBN and a Telstra subsidiary to the post when we were awarded Australia's best digital platform. So those sort of things, like I really have to pinch myself, can't believe they're, they're happening, but it's all that that just, uh, I think, continues to motivate you when you, you run a relatively small business. Um, you need that val external validation. Um, yeah, of course. Sometimes. Yeah. And, and how big is the business today in terms of people? Well, you know how I mentioned we started really lean and yes. that meant not hiring salaried people, having contractors that I could sort of turn off and on as needed. Um over time, my expectation was I would hire a bunch of people as salaried employees. What actually has happened, though, is that the whole team on Matchboard is all contractors. And usually people associate that with lots of movement. But yeah. most of the contractors we work with, our developer, our SEO consultant, our graphic designer, all those things, uh, have been with us for many years. So um, that is very unusual when um, people find out it's, it's, that's the structure, um, but it works, it works for me, it works for the team. Um, and I think one of the things everybody is looking for these days is flexibility yep. uh, with work. And uh, everyone that's part of Matchboard has that. And so uh, it's a really interesting insight as well. Um, 
Because, you know, we're seeing trends towards the gig economy or gig work or, or contingent work, whatever you may call it, um, start to accelerate. Uh, but it sounds like you were actually an early mover and, and the business model kind of makes sense from a digital platform perspective. You know, the, the platform runs itself in the sense that it operates all the time. Um, I assume the engineering talent are helping maintain it and add new features as time goes on. But are, are the contractors that you refer to, are they full-time contractors? So they work five days a week with the business or will they work on other projects over time as well? They all have something else going on. Um, so they're not 100% dedicated to Matchboard, but depending on the month, you know, obviously the developer, um, you know, it took him months of full-on dedicated effort to develop, but then, you know, it went into more maintenance mode and he could pick up um, other other clients. So, yeah, I think um, that model uh, is great if you can find people that are going to be loyal. Yeah. Uh, in today's really tight labor market, it is, even for salaried employees, it's hard to get that retention, that loyalty yeah. factor. So, um, Are they all based in Australia? No, no. Um, they're based in a few different countries. But uh, that, again, I think that uh, diversity in the workforce, uh, you know, they're linguistically, culturally diverse, neurodiverse. All that I love. I, I just love diversity. I think it um, brings innovation and and new ideas that you wouldn't think of on your own. Fantastic. Um, and then just touching back on on the journey and and you know, again, phenomenal uh, that you've been in this business for over ten years. That in any by any measure is is an awesome measure of success. Um, what do you think some of the toughest points have been of the journey? Was there a point where you're like, I've done this for too long now, you know, ready for something else. <laughs> it's getting boring or it's slowing down. You know, it's not as growing as fast anymore. Have any of those moments kind of happened? Yeah. I've always been worried. What if I get sick of doing this? But the reality is I wake up every morning thinking, you know, what requests are, are going to come through today? Who are we going to match with who? And it's <laughs> almost like this incredible sense of anticipation, which hasn't diluted over time, miraculously. So, um, but uh, one of my early challenges was uh, in the first year, heaps of long hours and hard work. And I was actually at the living room table, like typing uh, in a very non-ergonomic um, setup. And uh, got a, a severe RSI. I couldn't even lift up a plate. And I thought, oh my God, that's the end of my business. If I can't type emails and proposals and do all that, how's this going to work? Um, so uh, I quickly um, dedicated myself to, to listening to the physios and all the advice around ergonomics. And, and in the meantime, I until I got myself on track, I, I used that speech recognition software, which was very frustrating, yeah. but um, enabled me to get by. Um, but it could have brought the business down, literally, uh, when you have a severe RSI, it's just debilitating. So that was uh, a real scare early on, a real challenge. Um, the other main challenge I'd call out is going global so yeah we we uh won a grant to try and have a crack at the uk market i hired a country manager there 
um, who was going really well. And then just before COVID resigned, there was no overseas travel then you for a few years. And I couldn't rehire. So ended up just maintaining things from Australia, um, which was very challenging, speaking to US uh, UK clients after hours, and it was draining. Uh, everyone thinks going global is very glamorous, but with time zone differences, it's extremely hard work. It's exhausting. Yeah. Um, what what motivated so, that that move? I mean, it sounds like the business is going well in Australia. What was it that point? And I mean, if you don't mind me asking, like, do you regret trying to go global? Maybe at that point in time. Yeah. Um. I, re- I, I, I'm not afraid of failure. And um, so I thought I'll give it a crack. In hindsight, it wasn't the right timing, but who could have predicted COVID, right? Um, yeah. And it, it was just something that I thought, if I've had all this global experience, why aren't I taking my own business global? But at the time, you know, with young kids, you don't realize actually that um, it is actually about finding the right time um in your life to take uh big big business risks and i would put going into international markets as a a business risk i've since come to the conclusion that unless you're prepared to actually go over there for you know three to six months to bed bed it down um you can't you can't do it justice yeah so it is on my radar to now with uh kids that have just finished high school to to then come back to that expansion plan. Yeah, that's a they're really good, really good insights. And um, like we've touched on a couple of topics now from uh, realizing that uh, those initial characteristics that you're you know, somewhat born an entrepreneur, uh, experiencing the booms and busts, and then making that leap to to Matchboard, and then assembling that initial uh, we'll call it the MVP, the mobile product and. Mm-hmm learning how to pull it all together um you've you've created this team that you know, which is i would say an innovative model to run a business like yours um and you've found your way through uh, what would you say um were some of the maybe three biggest personal learnings to get through the journey and so i know you've shared a lot of different learnings along the way but um personally how how, you know, how have you kept going and you, you've spoken about kind of it's still exciting every day, which is which is awesome. But if you could try to distill it into maybe some lessons that people can take away and reflect on themselves, what, what would three of them be? Yeah. Okay. So number one would be never um, underestimate just how hard it is to find customers. <laughs> a lot of people, when they start a business, they have this Excel spreadsheet with these beautiful numbers showing growth every month and uh, it all looks great but the reality on the ground is it nearly always takes more effort than you think and um and you can't put all your eggs in one basket you've got to have a multi-pronged strategy because things change i mean seo algorithms for example um have caused lots of ups and downs for my business and it's it accounts for half of our traffic so um You've got to, um, I guess, mitigate the risk of, um, you know, those things happening by having lots of different sales and marketing channels. Uh, so that's the number 
one I would call out. Um, number two, I would say is um, learn to make decisions fast. Um, it's it is hard. Like in the corporate world, people sit on things forever and they take their time. It frustrates vendors no end. Uh, you, you know, with these long sales cycles because people just can't make a decision. If you have decision paralysis as an entrepreneur, you're gonna run into strife very quickly. So that's been a real learning for me to just like quickly, quickly, and it it really, I guess, refines your your business judgment over time. And it's just something that you learn with experience. So do you have a do you have yeah? I was gonna say do you have like a bit of a framework that you apply to making decisions? Um, you know, I've kind of heard, of, for example, Jeff Bezos is famous for talking about. It's either is it a decision that's going to kill the company, um, you know, therefore you have to address it there and then, or is it something that you know it's not going to make a difference? You put it to the side. Like how do you how do you? Yeah. Do um, most decisions I make fairly quickly based on that instinct, to be honest. But for things where I feel I'm outside my comfort zone, uh, one of the best things I did was set up a board of advisors. Yep. So we've got four execs on that who uh, kindly, you know take my calls or emails uh, all over the place to get to get advice. So I think it is important to to know when you're um, uh, you know batting above your station here with something that you really shouldn't be making a decision on without advice versus something you're pretty confident in um, and just biting the bullet. So yeah, the decision making skills are key. Uh, you asked me for three, though, didn't you? I so, did. You, and, and I didn't mean to interrupt you while you were in your train of thought. So, um, oh, not at all. So find, um, it's hard to find customers. Don't underestimate it. I completely agree with you. I think the first thing is, you know, when you start out, it's about the building the product is hard, particularly if you haven't built one before, and you think like that's the the challenge. But actually, once you build it, you need to figure out distribution along the way. So that's I think that's yeah. a really good insight. The second one. Um, you touched on, and I've just, I've just gone blank, so you might need to remind me because we've just literally spoken about it. <laughs> oh, uh, speed of decision-making. Speed of decision-making, yeah. thank you. And the third? And the third one, this is coming back to speed, but not for decision-making, for customer service. Now, I believe it's one of the biggest competitive weapons in business if you can provide speedy service to customers. Um. Because so many companies have a policy, we will get back to you within 24 hours, we'll get back to you in 48 hours, we'll get back to you in one week. Like you, you've you struck that many times, I'm sure. Yeah. So when Matchboard gets back to customers within minutes or an hour, something like that, people are just blown away. They have not experienced this before. They're delighted. And, um, you know, I've got a policy where you've got a sales inquiry. If you can, drop what you're doing and instantly hop on it. And so few people uh, have that approach. But it makes such an incredible first impression when you do react quickly yeah. uh, to inquiries. So, uh, And I even saw a study by, again, Harvard Business Review, um, which uh, said – Something like getting back to someone in a matter of an hour versus a matter of a few days makes you 600 times more likely to close a deal, something like that. Yeah, that responsiveness, um, that, that attentiveness, I agree. Yep. 
Attentiveness, yeah. So that's my third tip. Fantastic. Super valuable. Uh, again, agree with so many of the things you've said today around, um, in particular, those last three tips. I think uh, very timely as well as people go into the new year and think about how can I be successful in business. That element of trust, uh, extremely important. That element of focusing on the customer. And I think speed uh, is something that a lot of people don't realize the importance of urgency in uh, in mm. doing business. Um Sharon, I've had a fantastic time speaking with you today. Uh, were there any sort of final thoughts you wanted to share with us? And uh, and if not, where where's the best place for us to find you if we wanted to chat to you more or learn more about Matchboard? Oh, sure. Well, you can head to matchboard.com.au and have a poke around. As I mentioned, it's a free-to-use website if you're looking for a new service provider. Um, but I would love to be connected with uh, your listeners on LinkedIn. Uh, you can search Sharon Melamed. Um, on our website, you'll also find phone numbers, emails. Uh, that's one of the things that I was very pedantic about. A lot of companies don't show the phone number on their website. They don't want calls from customers, which I think is just crazy. Like, you know, that's the goldmine of information actually interacting with customers. So you want to make it easy for them. So, yeah, so people can find a phone number and email address on on the Matchcord website. Um and uh, connect with me, for sure. Uh, I would love to hear from your audience. Thanks so much, Sharon. It's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Thanks so much. From Little Things is brought to you by Papera, the all-in-one solution that makes business easy for Aussie sole traders, company directors, and small business owners. You can learn more and get started for free at papera.com. From Little Things is part of the Sonic Boom network of podcasts. To get your brand started on its own podcast, visit sonicboom.vc.